Thanks again for checking out the Big Sky Boneheads podcast. My name's Michael Gray. His name is Scott Hershey. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to this show wherever you get your podcast. Really excited to talk to our guest this week, Jeff Ballard, former Major League pitcher, spent a good deal of years with the Baltimore Orioles out of Billings, where he calls home. Uh, now he's from Billings, and then he went to Stanford, and then he went to Baltimore, and now he's back in Billings. Um, when I was uh, just out of high school, Jeff Ballard in Billings was a big, big deal. Yeah, and, for uh, sure. And a big celebrity, and everybody watched every time he would pitch on TV. Uh, it would be a big deal. The whole city would know, and we would watch. It was pretty cool to be able to talk to him. Dude shared a, a clubhouse with Cal Ripken Jr. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, the name of names. So uh, that'll be an interesting conversation. Also, because he's in Billings, uh, not, not sure where you are while you're listening to this, but as we speak, uh, the rivers are still rising here in and around Montana, and uh, the news has been all bad. We went from historic drought to record-setting floods in what feels like about four days. Yeah. We went from, wow, look, we're getting rain. Finally, it's greening up to, oh, crap, uh, the rain won't stop and the rivers are rising and people are losing homes, and um, we're watching bridges wash out. Yellowstone is closed. Uh, we are going to include a number of links to relief efforts in and around the state uh, by the uh, through the Montana Community Foundation and also through the American Red Cross as people are going to need these services, not just uh, now today as we speak to you on uh, the 15th of June but also in the weeks to come because there's more rain and there's more snow and it continues to fall. Yeah, and it's uh, just kind of just the beginning of it because uh, the the drainages that have that have all flooded now all come out of Yellowstone, the Stillwater, those areas down there. I have a feeling there's going to be more, maybe not quite as severe. However, flooding is going to occur in other parts of the state. We talked with so much glee about how much snowpack we had and how much right. moisture we got, and now we're kind of paying the price for that. Although you know, of course, we needed it, but uh, you're gonna you're gonna have flooding. I already saw some you know Lolo Creek and some of these small streams on the western part of the state now are, are starting starting to rise uh we're not by any means done with this so any way that anyone can help montana becomes such a small community in these because you'll know somebody affected by this my dad just sent me a picture this morning his next door neighbor had the house half of it fall into the river in yellowstone uh into the yellowstone river at park city so this is uh it's 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 sad uh it is devastating for those uh, who are involved and the rest of us uh, hopefully can just help and yeah, and cannot urge you enough. If you're uh, if you're here in Montana and you're in a part of the state that is unaffected, if you're in and around the country and you're hearing this and you've got a couple of bucks, uh, you know your your dad's neighbor as an example. Every day this week as we've gone through, you've been showing me the photos. Like wow, the water's getting closer. Wow, his front yard's going. Away. Uh, yeah. And today it's just one corner of the foundation and a bit of the wall that didn't go into the rapids. Um, it, it makes your tum- stomach turn when you yeah. see it and you know that place and it's right next door to my dad's and it it it, it hits part of you it, like it, you know and I'm not going to pretend that I'm the family devastated by that but to see it and be so familiar with it is it just shows you that it touches us all here in this state. Yeah, and it's going to continue uh, because that that water's flowing. It's on the move. Uh, it doesn't just evaporate. It doesn't just go away. And like I said, there is snow continuing to fall in the mountains. We have not, if you're not from Montana, you may not know that we have not yet hit the part where the snow melts. No. This is rain that's causing all of these floods. And again, we went right from uh, record-setting drought to record-setting floods, and a lot of people really struggling with this. So please, if you can, <laughs> grab those links uh, included in the description of this thing, and uh, any donation, any uh, dollar, anything you've got at all, 
uh, will help. Everything you hear about the temperatures and the weather here is true in the fact that it parts of the state yesterday it snowed, and Friday it's going to be 90 degrees across the state, and that snow is going to melt and come down the mountain. And that's that's really kind of what we got to look forward to. So uh, it's, a, it's a tough week here in Montana. It really is. Mother Nature has no chill, but you can help. So please be a part of that. With all of that said, uh, really, really happy to welcome our guest in this week, Mr. Jeff Ballard, former Major League pitcher, a native of Billings, Montana. How are you, sir? Great. How are you guys? Uh, well, we're okay. We're not in a part of the state where the water is rising. How are things where you are? Hectic, I guess. You know, I, I feel very fortunate to have a cabin up in the up in the Red Lodge area on a creek, but not one, to my knowledge, that's... Uh, been out of its banks so very very fortunate uh with that but feel certainly feel the uh anguish of so many people it's uh it's it's sad yeah and then and, you know i've been looking at a lot of drone coverage of you know paradise valley and you know even around billings uh you know i know scott your family's dealing with it on park city um it's pretty uh it, it's amazing and very sad all at the same time it absolutely is, and uh, we just saw where the water treatment plant has been shut down. It's going to be something that affects Montanans for a while. And uh, and, and Jeff, uh, I, like I said, I'm, I'm a Montana guy, so uh, I kind of um, – I'm quite familiar with uh, how much Billings was behind you uh, when you were in the major leagues and uh, and what a big deal that was. And and with Billings in Major League Baseball, you um, you followed in kind of the footsteps, at least for, for Montanans and for Billings people uh, – of, of Dave McNally. So a fantastic name to follow in and uh, tell us a little bit about going back to that time, major league baseball, kind of rare in Montana to have a player at that level. What was it like for you to have this, uh, the support of the state? Well, it was, it was incredible. And certainly my relationship with uh, Dave was, you know, very special hit. You know, when they, when he retired and moved back to Billings and gosh, it probably would have been 76 um, his son was the same age. His son named Jeff was same age and we got to know each other and, uh, and set same age school wise. He was a year older baseball wise, but, uh, um, we were in the same class in seventh grade, got to meet and became, became really good friends. And then Jeff and I played Scarlet baseball together. And then both he and I got scholarships to go to Stanford. So, uh, you know, I was really close with the McNally family, still a very close with the McNally family. And, um, you know, they, they're, they were great. And I certainly learned a ton from Dave and it was great that, um, you know, I had that resource, uh, to come back in the off season. I'd come back and, and stop by their house, you know, probably more than once and chat with him about pitching and the major league baseball and all that stuff. And it was, it was always interesting, the bits and pieces I'd pick up. And I remember one time specifically, he, and it, it had been after, I think it was probably after my rookie, my first call up in, in 87, uh, I'd been up and got called up in May, got called up again in uh, uh, September. You know, I was home that winter of 87, 88. And, and he, uh, he said, uh, they play hard up there, don't they? And, you know, I never really thought about that. You know, I was just playing the game. I hadn't really tried to quantify or, you know, really, you know, see it from a bigger picture. But as I sit there, it hit me. And I'm like, you know, they really do, <laughs> you know, and, and uh, I just thought it was an interesting um, perspective because, you know, what, what you see sometimes is the guy hits a ground ball routine to short, they throw it to first and the guy, you know, 
he's pretty much not worried about getting down the line too fast. A lot of them, some of the guys that can run do, I mean, they're always trying to beat it out, but, but, and, and you, know, you understand that the, you know, the amount of errors made on those kind of ones, they catch it are very, very uh, few and far between. And, um, and, and so you kind of understand it, but taking that out of the equation, um, they play incredibly hard at that level and the intensity of the players uh, goes with it. And I think that that was one of those aha moments that I realized that, wow. Yeah. I mean, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to continue to try to stay at this level, um, you know, you gotta, you gotta bring your game for sure. What was that first call up like? You know, um, I was rocking and rolling at triple a in, in May of 87. Uh, I think I was five and oh, with like a one, one eight or something at the time ERA. And so just dominating, you know, get the call up and, and you're just excited. And then my first call, my first game, you fly, you know, they never give you like, here, we're going to give you a week to adjust or acclimate. It's, you get there and they throw you right in the fire. I mean, they do not waste days of service. You know, they don't bring you in three or four days before they're planning on starting you. You get there one day, if they're, if you're, if they're planning on starting you, you start the next. So it is a whirlwind uh, when, when you're in that situation. And so I flew into Chicago you know, go to the team hotel, get your room, and then, you know, you show up at the ballpark. And the next day, you know, I'm out in the bullpen warming up for my start. My family's flying in, you know, so you got a lot going on. Um, and, uh, you know, you're, you, it's hard to even express the amount of adrenaline you had. I, I had been just in a total zone in Rochester and got to Comiskey and I'm warming up the bullpen. And it's like, I didn't know where the ball was going. And it, uh, Terry Kennedy was the catch. And I, I remember, um, him saying to somebody like, God, it's got a lot of movement. And I'm like, I'm not supposed to have that much movement. <laughs> yeah, it's not supposed to be that bad. You know? And I, I just, I remember going into the game, just you're kind of numb and, and just the amount of adrenaline. I didn't have a very good game. I, uh, you know, I didn't last just but a couple innings, I think in that game, but, um, but you know, a lot of it was, was just nerves, you know? And, and, and they, when you get nerves to that level and adrenaline, um, you're not used to pitching that way. At least I hadn't been, you know, and you get your experiences all along. I mean, you know, I pitched in the college world series and pitched at Stanford and, and all these things and multiple times in the college world series, uh, three times actually we went. So you, know, you, you kind of get your experiences as you go, but that's the pinnacle. And so trying to try to prepare yourself for that, you can't really do it until you're there. Major league clubs do an awful lot to take care of young arms and pitch counts and other things and restrictions for young pitchers. What was it like when you came up? Well, there was not, yeah, there was, you know, there was <laughs> none of that still. Yeah. Not really. I mean, I suppose they, I suppose they around the hundred pitch mark, they'd start paying attention, uh, <laughs> a little bit. but um, you know, they uh, back then, you know, even when I was there my, in my years, this when this closer was really starting to become a, a, a real thing. I mean, and so it's not like you were, always expected to throw complete games, but you weren't far removed from that atmosphere of major league baseball. And you go back into the, you know, the thirties, the forties, the fifties, the sixties, even definitely into the seventies. Um, you know, when the, when the starter started, uh, his, his whole mentality was, this is my game. You know, I'm, I'm not planning on coming out. Uh, that probably changed had changed a little bit by the late eighties. Uh, a fair amount where, you know, you start having some setup guys, the bullpens were a little bigger part of it, but I think as a starter, you know, you're still thinking, yeah, I'm going to finish the game. And I had 
plenty of complete games and you don't see that very often now. Mm-hmm. Um, you just don't. And, and you definitely don't because I was like, I was throwing shutouts and getting complete games or I had a no hitter going to the ninth and they just go, well, we got to see if he gets it. It's not that, it, you know, if I'm pitching a game and it's, I've given up one or two runs, but I'm pitching well and we got a lead. They're pretty much going to let you go. If it got down to a save situation, um, then yeah, then they might bring in a guy for the eighth and then the closer for the ninth, they'll let you go through the eighth and bring in the closer for the ninth. Um, in, in those kind of deals because they're, they had started to specialize, but not like it is now, not even close. Yeah. So Jeff, the, uh, I, games I, threw, I suppose I had plenty of games right through 120 pitches, you know, right. The, uh, the, 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 the names that you pitched against are, you know, there's hall of famers now, of course, uh, what was the one that stepped up to the plate first where you basically went, I can't believe I'm pitching against this guy. What, what was Nolan that? Ryan. Who was that first? Nolan Ryan. Yeah. Nolan Ryan. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Nolan Ryan had been around for 20 years by the time I got there. <laughs> so <laughs> still out there throwing 97 and, you know, watching him throw is crazy. You know, I got to pitch a game against Nolan Ryan. Um, yeah, that, that was, that was really, uh, you know, I think, I, I think I ended up winning the game if I recall it correctly, but, um, and then, you know, and, and only reasons, cause for whatever reason, the Orioles, even on the, most of the teams I was on weren't very good. The 89 team is certainly the special team, but they had, they hit him well for some reason. So we, we ended up scoring runs off Nolan, um, more so than, you know, some of the other guys. Now that being said, I remember, you know, the best thing about, my time period was watching, you know, I got to watch uh, the rocket throw a bunch when he was in, you know, red and for the Red Sox and Saberhagen. Um, I watched Saberhagen throw a game against us in um, uh, Memorial stadium in Baltimore. We have a, we had a gun that was piped to the dugout. So you, and these, this is the slow gun. You didn't, I don't think people understand, you know, just for, you know, information for people is back in the eighties. And I don't know when, when they made the switch over, but definitely for my whole career, um, ladies into the early nineties, they used what they called the ray gun and the ray gun would read the slowest reading of pitches. So it read it as the balls crossing the plate. And, um, and there's, you know, they, they say, and I don't have the facts on this, but they talk about there being on fastballs four to seven miles an hour difference between the readings you're getting today um, on stuff and what, uh, what we would read on the gun back in the days that I played. And so what's really interesting. So I watched Saberhagen throw a game and he was pitching to Bob Boone and Boone, Booney didn't move his glove for nine innings. I mean, it was one of the most <laughs> unbelievable things I sat there and watched and Saberhagen, I don't think the slowest, slowest fastball he threw in nine innings was 96. And that, I mean, that was electric and we got a lot. I mean, we got an infield little CNI bunt hit. That was the only reason we got a hit. Um, I think he threw a one, and we might have had two of them, one or two hitter. But we had no chance to score, just zero. And um, so you run into those games where you see those, that kind of talent out there. Um, it's pretty amazing. You know, I had the best seat in the house uh, sitting there on the bench watching in the dugout. So um, I got to see some pretty incredible things for sure. I wanted to ask you about that, Jeff. How much uh, of your career when you are sitting there, because pitchers are kind of regarded like goalies in the NHL. You see them, they go into the dugout, nobody makes eye contact. They've kind of got this little halo around them and they're left in their zone. But how much of the game are you watching as opposed to being in your own head about what you've got to do? Well, when you're pitching, like if, you know, starters, you know, when, when it's your day and you're pitching, you're, you're, I'm not watching a whole lot about what the other pitchers doing. I am, 
I'm, I'm sitting there thinking about their hitters and taking a breather in between innings and, you know, getting ready to go back out there. So you, you are very, and, and guys, you know, they, they know to leave you alone. You're, you are kind of isolated a little bit in there uh, in the dugout when you're coming in, especially if you got a good game going, no one wants to like mess with your juju, you know? So, um, but on the other days, you had know, four days off on a five man rotation. You, you, you'd be able to watch if you didn't have an off day, you'd see three or four games in between starts. Now in those days you're watching the other pitcher throw uh, because you're, you can always learn something and um, you know, you're seeing how they mix their pitches and what kind of pitches they're throwing. And, and uh, it's, it's, you know, and, and just like you watch your guy throw. Um, so yeah, you do pay attention to uh, what's going out on the field. And I think you see that, you know, and when I look at, you know, it's not like you're not talking, but you're watching at the same time. Um, and you see the guys now they're, they're attentive. You know, you watch, they show those dugout pictures. Most of those guys up on the railing are pitchers, you know, watching. So. And with that being said, you know, it's, it's an indiv- it's a team sport uh, with the, such, such an individual aspect to it, especially when it's a pitcher versus a batter. Uh, what, what is the mentality? How is the mentality different in a, in a major league baseball pitcher compared to guys who maybe just don't have the mental makeup, but might have the physical skills. What, what aspect of that puts you over the top? It's a really good question. And I, and, and I suppose if you ask uh, different people, you'll get a bunch of different answers. You know, they talk about it being the X factor. Um, you know, I, it's, it's, it's really hard to know exactly what it is. My opinion would be that um, guys that, that, you know, you got to have the stuff and, and, and to get there, but the mental strength that goes with pitching is incredible. You have got to be able to put what just happened behind you. You know, you walk a guy, you got to refocus on what's to come and try to minimize damage all the time. And so I think resiliency is one perseverance, all those, all those terms come to mind. Uh, what makes a good starting pitcher? Um, you've got to be able to, you know, fight through some adversity when you're out there as a reliever, probably kind of the same, although they tend to switch you out real quick. So you're either on or you're off or you get your one hitter. So you got to go in and be mentally strong for that guy. And then, you know, somebody else is coming. As a starter, even in today's world, you know, they, they still need you to get through five innings. Ideally, I, I'm guessing it's where they'd like to see you. Um, you, you, you can't just go out and, and let something bother you to where you give up crooked numbers. You know, if you can give up one here and one there, it's good, but all of a sudden they put a four spot on the board. You know, that's what really dictates who wins and loses baseball games or big innings. And so as a pitcher, you your your whole goal is to try to, you know, keep it keep it down. And I remember in college um, pitching, I can't remember what year it was, maybe my junior year. Um, we were down, going down to Arizona State, and Arizona State was loaded. I mean, they had, you know, Barry Bonds and Odie McDowell, and, you know, they had all sorts of great players down there, Mike Devereaux, to name a few. And so they obviously put up big numbers. And when you pitch in Tempe, you know, it's hot, the field's hard and fast, hard place to pitch. And But I also knew Arizona well enough, Arizona State well enough to know that they don't play very good defense, they don't have very good pitching, so we're going to score too. So I'm like, you know, if I can just give up, one run and inning. That's it. If I can just keep it to one run and inning, we're going to win the game. And um, so I went out and I pitched. I pitched great. I gave up seven. I gave up seven runs, one in seven different innings. The coach never pulled me out because he's like, "Man, that's great. If we can only give up one run and inning, <laughs> we ended up winning. You know, we won thirteen to seven or something like that. I pitched the whole game. So 
you know, your mentality that goes with being a starting pitcher, I think, is an important one. I've seen guys with great stuff, and they go out and, and, and start a game. And, you know, the first little hiccup that happens, um, they, uh, you know, they kind of melt down and, co- and compound it. And then there's also pitchers you see that um, – and I think the other part of, of, of makes a good pitcher is you know, that tenacity or that unwillingness to just concede a run. It's like you've got to be incredibly stingy. So – for example, you've got a guy on third base and less than two outs. And, yeah, you know, you could give up a hit there or say, yeah, less than two outs. Or you could, you know, give up a sack fly and the run scores. And you're like, okay, I got an out and I got two outs and no one on and no big deal. But the pitchers that are really tough are those guys that bear down and say, you know what, I'm not going to just give up a run. I'm not just going to throw a fastball in there or, you know, get something up where you can just hit a fly ball. You're going to have to earn it. And a lot of times, you know, those guys find a way to strike the guy out to get to two outs and then give up the fly ball for an out and the inning's over. So you see the guys, I've seen the plenty of pitchers that have great stuff and they're strikeout guys and they get a guy in third base, less than two outs. And what do they do? Nice fly ball to center. That run scores easy. And you're like, why did you not bear down enough to not give up? And, and, and it becomes a pattern. Like you'll see it a lot. So at the end of the day, they pitched their game. Did they pitch? Well, yeah, maybe they won eight to four, but they, they gave up four runs for no reason. You know, so their ERA is still pretty high. And it's uh, you, you just, the difference between a lot of those major league guys are incredibly stingy. They don't, there's like, I am not giving up a run if I don't have to, right. I'm not going to just concede one to you. Now, Jeff, your passion for the game comes screaming through, and I'm a I'm a lifetime baseball fan myself. But it occurs to me that Billings, where you call home with your family, is a long way from Stanford. It's a long, long way from Baltimore. What do your right. kids know and understand about Dad and what he did back in yeah. the day? Well, you know, I had kids so late in life. You know that uh, that was my first life was long over before I started having kids. I have a ten year old daughter and a thirteen year old son right now, so. Um, you know, I haven't played baseball since 94. Right. Um, so, you know, it's almost 30 years now since I've, since I've actually played, but, um, you know, my son's really into the game. Um, you know, it didn't take long in life to where, uh, they were old enough to see like, gosh, everybody knows dad, you know, <laughs> and, and stuff like that. Cause you'd be out and people would come up and say hi. Well, part of the reason is Montana, even in Billings, it's a small community. Sure. So, whether I was uh, played major league baseball or not, you know, people. So, uh, but I would, I would guess that having done what I did, um, you know, uh, makes that a little bit stronger, I guess, where more people, you know, come up and say hi and, and you know, more people, I guess. But so that was just striking to them. But as they got older and started comprehending, you know, it was really cool as I got, we had a lot of VHS tapes my dad had that taped off the satellite. It really quality was crap, but right. you know, nonetheless, you could watch the game. So we had several, and I sent them down to a place in Arizona and had them put on uh, DVDs so I could watch it on TV um, now because who has a VHS player? And uh, so we got to watch it. My son got to watch quite a few different games uh, that I pitched, and. Uh, and of course, my wife likes it too. She she wasn't around then either, so because um, uh, she's a lot younger than I am, and so uh, you know she likes to see that. And so it's nice to to be able to show a part of my life that they you know haven't been able to appreciate. And the other kind of cool thing I think where it really is hit home for my kids and especially my son is that um, 
you know, I've had to go out to Baltimore a couple times for uh, Oreo functions. And the, the re- most recent one was in 2019 where they had the uh, 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 30th anniversary, I believe, of uh, the 89 team. Yeah, the Why Not team. Yeah, the Why Not team. And so uh, that was a really well-liked team for the, for the Oriole fans. And so they brought back as many players from that team for an event at the stadium during the game. And so we had a luncheon where there was a Q and a, then we, you know, that night we went to the game, we were down on the field before the game out, all of us that were there out on the mound in chairs. And it was kind of a Q and a down there through the loud, through the speaker system. And then my kids got to sit up in the Orioles box with my wife and watch kind of all of this happen. And they also, they got to meet Cal Ripken. They got to meet Billy Ripken. They got to meet some of my teammates um, that were there, uh, Greg Olson and, um, and whatnot. And so it was really fun for them to all of a sudden be put into an atmosphere of something that I used to do. And I think it really made it real for him, um, at that point. And so, uh, you know, my son thinks it's pretty cool. He talks about it a lot as far as me playing major league baseball and, and all that stuff. Then naturally you'd think, what does he want to do? Well, that's I'm going to be an MLB guy like that. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, my, my kids are almost identical in age. They're 11 and 14 as opposed to 10 and 13. And all I can do is point back to 25 years ago when I was interning and hanging banners at a radio station. You got a way better story. <laughs> and it leads, yeah. it leads right into uh, your son and, and your team being in the Little League World Series and, uh, and a whole bunch of Montana people getting to see them play. And not only getting to see them play, getting to see your relationship with your son in that capacity and your your relationship with that team uh it's got to be quite different and a lot of people can't make that leap because of the different style of coaching with 12 year olds as opposed to uh adults and uh so talk a little bit about that experience what that was like because that was such a big deal in montana well yeah it was uh well you know i was fortunate when i was in little league my dad coached me we played all stars and we when i was 12 we won the state championship and got to go to san bernardino as well for the regionals we had a really good team. We had a shot to win it, um, but didn't. And so we missed out. And so when my son, uh, you know, played all-stars uh, and, and made the team and, and we had a really good team, uh, we were hoping to win state, which we did. And we got to go to San Bernardino. I thought it was really special for me personally, just because I got to do it with my dad. My son gets to do it with me. And I thought that was really cool. So from a you know personal standpoint, it was a real thrill for me to go back to San Bernardino. You know, the downside of it was they didn't quite get the experience I had in a way because, you know, the COVID restrictions we had down there um, were significant and, you know, kind of disrupted things a little bit and, and you were held really captive. So you didn't get to quite enjoy the, what you, what, what I did uh, from a mingling with everybody and, and doing all that. But the games themselves now, for the reason you're there, they were great. And, what was really different from my time, obviously, is ESPN wasn't was was not even around back back in the seventies. So, um, and now you're on TV, so we got to do all these ESPN things, and um, the kids got to speak on camera. You know, they got their pictures taken. There's cameras around all the time. Huge deal for them. So that in itself is an experience I'll never forget. And I thought that was uh, – the, I'm thankful for ESPN and, and, and what Little League Baseball has done in their relationship with ESPN for making it – I mean, that is really a special thing for those kids, even if they don't get to go to the College World Series – I mean, or the Little League World Series. They, uh, they get, the regionals themselves are followed now um, 
pretty intently by communities and across the country. And I had, you know, lots of friends in other states saying, Hey, we saw you on TV. That was really cool. And this and that. So it was a great experience. And you know, those kids coaching kids is, um, it's a lot of fun. I mean, it's challenging in some respects. Uh, you know, it's no matter how good you are or bad, you, you know, whatever you, you're going to deal with some parent, you know, things, um, which, you know, not different than anybody else that's ever coached at this level. There are, you know, parents that I've had to deal with or different personalities of the kids and, you know, and, you know, parents, you know, not liking maybe how, how they feel their kids been treated, you know, versus other kids. And you got to have those conversations. And so it's, uh, you know, it's challenging for sure to, to coach, but in the end it's, it's really fun. And most of that team is the travel ball team that I've been coaching for the last several years as well. So it's not just a little league all-star team. It's also a travel ball team. And so I'm with these kids an awful lot and we've been, you know, bit busy, busy this year with travel ball. We're heading to go to the college world series and play a tournament in Omaha next week, um, which is really cool because Stanford's in it. So um, I, I mean, very excited, hoping that they're there long enough that uh, I can hook up with the head coach. He's a really good friend of mine that I played with at Stanford and uh, introduce him to my son and, uh, and my wife. Well, I, my wife's met him, but my son hasn't. So, or nor my daughter. And so it's going to be, fun to, to hopefully do that and uh, Kyle Peterson the announcer is a really good friend of mine as well who's a Stanford guy and so uh, we're going to find some time to say hi to him in between all of his broadcast duties with the College World Series and everything so such a looking forward to it is such a small world Jeff I wanted to ask you about that because I got lucky I got to live uh, for two years in Omaha I worked for ESPN uh, for a couple of years there when they opened uh, at the time now it's Charles Schwab Field I think I was there for the first year in the new park right. downtown uh, and I tell people all the time, if if there's an underrated sports event in this nation, it's the College World Series and what Omaha oh becomes. You got to see it as a player, and now you get to see it with these functions. I, I used to talk to Kyle every year, all the time, leading up right. to the thing. Yeah. Uh, he's a mainstay there. What was your experience yeah. like there coming in from, from Stanford and experiencing that as a player? Well, it's, it's really, of all the things I've done in baseball, I have to say the College World Series and college baseball in general, it's just really hard to get better than that. Um, you know, the game changes when you when it becomes a business. Um, you know, or at least the atmosphere of the game changes when it becomes a business. The game itself is still baseball. But, uh, you know, the, 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 the team camaraderie and the, just – all of that that goes with it or Stanford, my Stanford years are really uh, I just, they're probably the best of, 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 of everything I've ever done in baseball. And my freshman year going there, we, we had a really good team and we ended up winning uh, our regional and going to go to the college world series it was just epic. I mean, I was there for the play. They still show. I was watching when Wichita, I was in the stands at the game, right above the first base dugout a few rows when uh, Wichita state and Miami were playing. And if you, they still show it some of the greatest pickoff play in the history where they had, um, uh, gosh, yeah, I have to ask the, 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 the guy that had set the record for stolen bases for Wichita state was on first and they'd kind of been setting it up all game waiting for a scenario when, when this guy was on first base and I can't remember his name right now, but the pitcher on the mound for Miami, his move to first base all game was he'd step off, throw to first, step off, throw to first. And 
so he's they're just they just were setting this up all game and I and I noticed this all game and then this guy gets on in I don't know what any middle of the game somewhere and that's where he steps off throws and the first baseman dies for the ball the right fielder's running down the line the first baseman then gets up and takes off down the line the whole dugout comes out and is looking down the first baseline for the ball the second baseman's running out running out there to go get the ball and the base runner gets up and he's looking around. He sees everybody going. Well, he doesn't know what to do. He's well, I got to go. So he takes off and runs to second. And the pitcher pulls the ball out of his glove, throws it to the shortstop. They take him out. <laughs> and I, I'm just in the stands, mind blown by that. Just absolutely floored. And I and I replayed that over and over my mind for so long, thinking, Gosh, what a script! I mean, they set it up for innings, waiting for the right time for that guy. Um, and boy, it was classic. That was fun. So I was there freshman year. So we played Texas. You know, we, we, we never did well my three times there. We were never a threat to win it. Uh, but, uh, but we got there. I got to see Clemens and, and pitch against uh, Oklahoma state. Um, and, and he, and I, I forget the pitcher's name for Oklahoma state. Yeah. Tough to remember all the names off the top of my head, but um, both of the can I think was his name. And they both threw incredibly hard. Um, and watching them both strike out the first six guys, I think, on each side for the first two innings, no one touched it. You know, it was uh, it was really, really fun to see uh, that game. I pitched as a freshman. I pitched against Texas. I came in in relief in the second inning and pitched till the ninth, into the ninth. Um, and then we went extra innings and lost to them as my freshman year. And, you know, there's 20, 25,000 people there. at Rosenblatt Stadium was where it was at the time. So, um, you know, there's there's – the fanfare, the biggest crowds, you know, that I pitched in front of, and it was incredible. And I always think it was interesting because I went from the College World Series back to Billings and played for the Scarlets. Um, I had one more year of eligibility, and my Stanford coach said, just go home and play. And, you know, my next start's at Cobb Field after pitching 25,000 stadium. <laughs> so, uh, you know just great memories of it. And uh, we went my sophomore year again. And then my senior year, we lost in the championship game of regionals my junior year. So, um, and, and didn't qualify, but I mean, we're, we're, what a great run. Hey Jeff, you've, you've seen, uh, you've seen all the way from your youth to the major leagues. Now you're seeing uh, youth baseball with your son uh, and, and you'll get a chance to see college as well. And I'm sure you've watched uh, all levels of baseball. What is your kind of feeling on the state of the game? You know, there's so much problems with youth participation, but, and then there's also issues with watching major league baseball uh, television viewership, filling the seats up. But uh, as, as, as to way you see it, uh, I think college baseball is actually pretty healthy. Uh, but uh, what, where is it at right now? What do you feel like uh, could make it better? And, and your kind of your thoughts on that? Well, you know, it's a, it's, it, that's a hard question. Um, it's a million dollar question, actually. And I know that they're looking. I mean, they, yeah, there's, there's some problems, I, I suppose, on the participation side of baseball. You know, the, the thing is, though, is there's still lots of kids that play it. And um, is it different than when I grew up? Yes. Um, but, you know, people want to talk negatively about it. But at the same time, you know, Little League's still a very viable and healthy organization um, for kids to play in. And so, you know, from, from one part of me says it's still okay. I think what one of the, some of the things that are the hardest to deal with isn't so much the kids and the plane, but one, you got coaching 
is a problem. Uh, volunteerism, you know, getting the dads that actually should be coaching involved as opposed to the dads that don't know how to handle it or how to coach you get, you know, you get to where, you know, there's a lot of yelling and, and, you know, at kids and that's never a healthy thing. And you see those videos are on YouTube all the time. Right. Um, and, and I wouldn't necessarily say that's the norm, but it is what people see and it doesn't help the marketing of the game at all. I think also you have, um, you know, parents in the stands. I mean, they can't just sit and enjoy watching their kid and other kids go play a game and just let what happens happens. And the winning and the losing of the game is not what's so important. I mean, the kids need to compete. I think having a winner or loser is important, but in the big picture from a parent standpoint, you know, they need to just sit back and watch and enjoy the game. And they start yelling at the umpires. They start yelling at the kids. Um, and I've seen that happen. And it's sad that, that that's where society's gone with it. And I think then, you know, that translates into, you know, an umpire issue, <clears throat> excuse me. And you're seeing an umpire issue all across the country, not only in baseball, but in all sports, all youth sports, you're seeing a real referee shortage, umpire shortage. Um, and why are you seeing that? Well, is it that fun to go out there and get yelled at by fans in the stands? I mean, you're volunteering basically. And I know some umpires, they like high school ones, they get paid, but you know, literally they're not doing it for the money. And uh, I think it makes it challenging that the atmosphere that's created by, you know, the people that go watch these games is unfortunate. And for the amateur sports level, um, I think you're right. College baseball is still very healthy. It gets a little more serious there, but there's a reason college baseball is healthy. I mean, these kids are trying to get there. They get scholarships to go play there. And with what uh, TV's done to be able to market, not only the college world series, but the regionals, I mean, it's captivating. And the energy that the kids, that these teams bring to the game and, the, and what you're seeing is entertaining. So from that standpoint, I can really understand why college baseball, in my opinion, is very healthy. And it trickles down. It's not just because you're D1 and you play on the TV because you got regionals. I think all the way down through it, uh, college college baseball is very healthy. You've got a lot of college a lot of college scholarship opportunities. I think people undersell a ton the amount of opportunities out there to play college baseball. Um, and you know, I think that in itself, uh, if baseball did a li little better job marketing, you know, uh, I think it would help. You know, what the what the youth numbers and the youth you know, kind of atmosphere that's, that's out there. And Jeff, you certainly see a, a lot of the behavior you're talking about, even right here in Montana, my boy just played his second year of baseball at age 11 on a 12 U team. And he, you know, I'll see things and hear things from parents that make me cringe. Is, is there a way out of that? Is there a way to reverse some of that behavior and bring it back around to something that's healthier? Well, I don't know. I mean, it's it's really hard to know. I mean, the fabric of society has been torn down a lot. People don't respect each other like they used to. And so I think that's part of it. People feel more free to just say whatever they want now, regardless of how it makes it look um, and or regardless of how, you know, healthy it is for, for what they're blabbing out there. And the other thing that 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 I think is a problem for, for one, you know, colleges, they're expensive to go to. Um, no matter where you go. And so trying to get a college scholarship, certainly a competitive thing that may help kids go to college, but people think they're getting these scholarships at 12. Right. And, and so they're, you know, their whole deal is 
you know, don't be screwing my kid over, you know, he's the best player on the team. And, and, and that whole, that whole mentality that people have about just being about me and just being about my kid. And I don't care about the team and I don't care about you. You know, my kid needs to be playing and my kid's the best player on the team. And that's what I continually get confronted with. Not so much on my team itself, but on, you know, just in, in, in what I see out there when I talk to like the Legion coaches and you, you talk to, you know, just other people that are around it, that's, that's what you hear. And that's unfortunate to me that, that that's where it is. And I think, you know, what I think is everybody needs to, to kind of have a little more old school in them. You know, when we were growing up, or at least me, when I was growing up, if I came home and complained about the coach, you know, my dad would say, well, do you want to play? <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I do want to play. Well then figure it out. Right. right? You know? And so, you know, that being said, Hey, there are some coaches that are over the top abusive. That's uncalled for, you know, for sure. But I think most of the time it's not that, um, you know, a, you know, a high percentage of the time it's not that anyway. And so I think that there needs to be that ability for kids to, to make it on their own, you know, to, to, I think it's healthy for them to have to strive and work hard and have, bring their own work, work ethic to, to, to be a starter on a team or to, or to get playing time themselves, not a parent trying to manipulate their way in for on behalf of their kid. And, you know, if more parents were at home, talk about the mental side of the game, talk about, you know, what they need to do to get better and work harder. Um, those kind of conversations are going to bear more fruit with their kids being uh, successful in their life, whether it's through baseball or not, then what you see a lot of times is where parents are fighting the battles for them and just think their kids getting screwed all the time. And it's unfortunate that that's kind of the way it's gone down. Uh, baseball is coming to the high schools in the state of Montana. You mm -hmm. obviously have the credentials. You obviously have name recognition and probably are top of mind. Has your, uh, your phone been ringing off the hook for high school coaching jobs yet? And if they did, would you be interested in that? Well, no. Well, they won't call because, for one, they have to be a teacher first. And so there won't – you know, you have to be in, – in our school district here, you actually all, – all the jobs go to school district two people to start with you. So you need to be in the teaching system. Um, you don't have to be at the high school necessarily, but, you, you know, that's where that job's going to go. If they can't find anybody to be the head coach, then I suppose it would go out to, um, you know, the community and to see if they could find, uh, you know, some, some uh, coaches for that. But um, now on the peripheral – you could probably bring someone in to help a little bit. I don't know. I don't even know where the, if, if being an assistant is really, um, I think most of the coaches, they want to be school district two people, but you, you know, I'm sure you can bring, you know, people in to help with pitching, for example. But uh, right now, right now I've had zero conversations with anybody regarding high school baseball on any level. Um, and I've been the chairman of the Legion program in Billings for, I don't know, 20 some years. So, um, I've, I've been involved with Legion baseball extensively and to my knowledge, and, and I haven't talked to everybody, so this could be a, a false statement on, on, on the whole, but there hasn't been anybody that I know of in Legion baseball that's been, uh, approached by anybody from the high school association on any level to discuss high school baseball in the state and how it will work with Legion or anything else. Mm. Not now, maybe over in the Missoula area, they've had some because some of those a schools I know are planning on playing next year. Uh, there might be a, a couple teams around here, but I don't know who they're going to play. 
I know in Billings, none of the AA schools are be up and running next year. I think they're all earmarking the, the 2024 season to begin baseball because I think they got too many logistics to try to, to solve. One, where are they going to practice? Where are they going to play their games? You know, how are they going to take care of those fields? What's the relationship with those fields now and who's using them? How do they work their way in to, to those fields? And then on top of that, they got coaching. They got to figure out uniform, you know, the whole thing that goes with it. What are the budgets needed? How are we going to pay for it? There's all sorts of those questions that they got to get answered. And part of it, I think, is also how is the relationship with high school baseball and Legion and how's that going to work? I mean, it's done throughout the country. So it's not like the wheel needs to be reinvented, but it needs to be a conversation. And, and uh, right now I've had zero conversations with anybody, nor have I been invited to be at any table to have a round, round table discussion. Um, and nobody that I know has. Um, and so it's frustrating on that front. Um, so, you know, I don't really know what's going to happen with high school baseball or not. So. Well, Jeff, you obviously stay very involved with baseball. It's in your blood, but you also live here in Montana. Do you, do you get away from it? What do you do when you want to unwind and, and get away from the diamond and all of that? I haven't gotten away from it just my kids in those years that you're busy with it. And, you know, we've had little league and travel teams both going at the same time this year. It's just travel. So we, you know, we've played a pretty big and expanded schedule this year, and we're going to play 60 or 70 games probably by the time we're done with it. So, um, you know, it's a, it's, you know, it's a big deal, but we'll be done. We'll be done by the uh, last week of July. We'll, we'll have wrapped up and, uh, and, and, you know, I'll go to the cabin a little bit and uh, hopefully I'll get a couple rounds of golf in. I used to play a lot of golf. I didn't, I don't play very much anymore. Um, and typically don't start playing until baseball's over. Uh, so, you know, hopefully in August I'll get to play a little bit, but my kid plays, loves football. So he'll be involved in eighth grade football. Um, you know, my daughter's a softball player. So we, you know, spend some time with her in softball and, and she's liking volleyball, which is my wife's sport. And so, that, that at least I can say, here, honey, you can handle that one. <laughs> so I don't know anything about volleyball other than the fact I love watching it. So, um, but yeah, I don't, I don't know. You know, there's, uh, you know, we've started up in December with baseball. And so there hasn't been uh, for the last, I don't know how many years um, at, at our indoor down here with the travel team. And so I don't, you know, I don't, I don't know really. So when I quit coaching this team and, and not having to start up, uh, with coaching, then uh, I'm not sure what I'll do with all my time. <laughs> well, with uh, Montana being as popular as it is right now, uh, are you in touch with old teammates who want to come out and visit the state and uh, any of those old Orioles guys or MLB guys uh, come out and, and see and hang out? Yeah, no, not really. You know, that, there's not a lot of guys that I stay, you know, in touch with very closely. There was a friend of mine, Bob Malacky, uh, who I played with on the Orioles as a fellow pitcher. He's been a pitching coach. Um, and he has been the uh, C signed on last year to be the pitching coach in, I believe it's Boise. And uh, so with the independent league that's now here in the state. And um, so I, I, I had a bad knee last year. Uh, so meniscus tear that I didn't get surgery until after Thanksgiving. And so I didn't play any golf last year, but we went to lunch and, and got caught up and He'll be, he's back there this summer. So this year I plan on taking him golfing uh, whenever they get out here. So, you know, I do stay in touch a little bit with him. I got mostly the people I stay in touch with would be Stanford people. So, um, 
there's a couple guys, a uh, friend of mine in Chicago, Pete Stanisek and John Verducci out in the Bay area and a couple other guys that, uh, that I played baseball with at Stanford, um, that I stay in touch with. So more, more so them than, than the big league guys. They do have a couple teammates, uh, uh, that, you know, Facebook friends with Mike Devereaux, Paul Kilgis and a few guys, but it's not like I'm messaging with them all the time or anything, but you know, you get to see what they're up to or what their kids are up to through Facebook. Well, Jeff, we certainly appreciate you taking the time out of an incredibly busy schedule and checking in with us. It's a, it's a great story. We're glad to hear that you're uh, high and dry uh, in that part of the state right now. And uh, thank you so much for taking the time. Yeah, you know, it's funny as, as you talk and you get all these scenes coming back. Uh, we could probably go another couple hours. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, we absolutely could. I could talk baseball all day with you, Jeff. Thanks again. All right, guys. Hey, appreciate the time. Thanks. Thanks again to you and to Jeff Ballard for taking the time with the Big Sky Boneheads. Remember, as we started, those relief links are there in the description of the podcast. You can click those, be a part of the American Red Cross efforts and the Montana Community Foundation efforts uh, to provide flood relief for all of the people this week that have been devastated by the rising waters and uh, in and around the state. So please be a part of that. We'll be back next week.